Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Whether it's because of war, work, getting an education, or sheer curiosity, what's it like to leave your home country and be part of a diaspora? Each Armenian family has a person who is a victim of this situation, but we still have a hope. It's just like I feel like I um, kind of lost in my translation in between. We are very proud people, and we're proud of where we're from. I feel at home pretty much anywhere personally, but that's because I personally feel that I belong everywhere. And what are other ways someone can belong to a diaspora? Are they overlooked? Are they cast away? Are they discounted as a productive citizen? And that's how I see my disabled diaspora. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. I was born here in Hartford, raised in Farmington, and now I'm a proud homeowner back in Hartford. And, you know, I always thought that I'd live in another part of the world. My three big brothers did. One lives in Japan, the other's in Spain, one's in La La Land, or Los Angeles. But with the exception of one year in Washington, D.C., and it was in 2001, which you'll remember was a terrible year to be in Washington, D.C., I bloomed where I was planted. So I'm either the best person to do a show about what it's like being part of a diaspora, or the worst person to do a show about what it's like being part of a diaspora. We're going to find out. But so many people, for so many reasons, uproot themselves from where they were born. And today you're going to hear about how that displacement, that immersion, that massive shift forms and informs who they are and who they're not. You'll hear from a man who went from Benin, West Africa to Montreal, Canada when he was just nine years old. You'll meet a poet who went from South Korea at 18 years old to the United States. And you'll hear voices from the Armenian community in West Hartford from a rally last year. And at the end of the show, you'll hear from Robert Chelsea. You might remember him from a previous episode of Audacious. He was the first African-American full face transplant recipient and the oldest to do so in the world. And he talks about being a member of what he calls the disabled diaspora. But first, Fiona Vernal was born in Jamaica and is now an associate professor in the Department of History at UConn. In addition to teaching about the African diaspora, she also is a consultant for an exhibit at the Connecticut Historical Society called A Home Away from Home, Greater Hartford's West Indian Diaspora. I asked her to give me some background on where the word diaspora came from and how its meaning is beginning to expand. I think most of what people wanted to convey when they use the word diaspora and what they always meant to um, convey based on like the Greek origins of the word is a scattering, a spreading, a dispersion. And then later on, there were introductions of whether that was a voluntary or involuntary scattering, spreading, and dispersion. and. I work on the African diaspora and 
it's pretty commonplace in the 19th century, but it's not until the 1960s that you really see this concerted effort in the literature. So I, I think it's good to think about the way that academics are using it and then the more conventional everyday connotations of the word. I know the word diaspora was also used in connection with the Jewish people. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. And and when you think of um, a particular group of people and diaspora, it usually conjures the Jewish experience at first. And then a lot of people have found it very useful in terms of conceptualizing the movement of peoples of African descent. And now it's become so ubiquitous and I would say colloquial, right? Everybody is talking about diasporas. Now, I'm all for popularizing terms if it helps people to participate in all kinds of conversations. But I do think it's important to think about the historical context when we're using it, whether we're thinking about um, the diaspora in terms of Jewish diasporas or whether we're thinking about the diasporas in terms of African diasporas. Did you find that when you were talking with people that their experiences aligned with some of yours as a member of a diaspora? I came here primarily because my mom wanted an education for us. And when you're growing up in Jamaica, your sights are set on education. Your parents, your family, they they drum it into you that the only way for you to accomplish your goals on and your, your dreams is for you to become educated. And also that people, nobody can take your your education away from you. And growing up, that's what I knew. I knew I was going to college when I was growing up. The problem was how, how are you going to pay for it? And I think that's what a lot of members of diasporas, whether we're talking about the Puerto Rican diaspora or Mexican diaspora or the West Indian diaspora, is that you have all these dreams and all of these aspirations and then the money isn't there for you to go to school. And so a lot of people um, are looking for a way out. And that's why my mom came to the U.S. because all of us wanted to go to college. I have two other sisters and we all wanted to go to college. And my mom said there's free public education in the U.S. So that's why we came here. Can we talk about identity for a minute? Because I know a common thing many Black people and people of color experience usually when talking to a white person, is the question, so where are you from? No, where are you from, really? And (laughs) you're from a lot of places, right? You're from Yukon. You're from New Jersey. You're from Jamaica. You're from the planet Earth. So when you get that question, with all the thought you've given to being part of a diaspora, how do you react to that question? Where are you from? If anybody asks me where I'm from, I always say Jamaica. I, I don't actually usually think New Jersey. And and even sometimes when I'm in academic circles and people say, where are you from? <laughs> and they're asking what university. <laughs> I'll, I'll, still say, I'll still say Jamaica and they'll say, no, no, no. Uh, like, what university are you from? And I, and I don't think that's very different for a lot of Jamaicans because we are a lot of things. We are very proud people and we're proud of where we're from. And so that's always, if anything, that's my factory setting to say, I'm from Jamaica. (laughs) And what do you think about that question in general, this, where are you from question? And I don't know, you have to kind of 
calibrate what home means to you. So I guess a better question is, what does home mean to you? My answer for home is very complicated. My my family was afraid for a really long time that I was going to run away and live in South Africa because I was. <laughs> I was going to run away and live in South Africa. I fell in love with South African history when I was in college and South Africa was just coming out from legal uh, apartheid and I went to South Africa and and I and I felt instantly at home in South Africa and said in the back of my mind yeah that's going to be my new home and someday <laughs> that might be true but as a black person I feel lucky to be able to move around in all kinds of circles in Jamaica in Hartford, in New Haven, in South Africa, in London, some of my family is in South London. And no matter where I am, I feel like home, but it's because of the people. It's because of the people that that it feels like home. This is such a rich topic, but is there anything that I missed that you want to make sure you say? That term diaspora and the way that it's it's getting more play and people are using it in an everyday way. I I think that's great. It's just actually uh, conveying what it is they're trying to trying to say. So I hope as people are domesticating the word, they'll also pause to think about the origins of it and how their use of it may be different. Maybe different. So. That's all I wanted to add. Well, Fiona Vernal, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyone. Back in October of 2020, about 150 members of the Armenian diaspora and their friends gathered in West Hartford Center. They were asking the president and the Congress of the United States to pass resolutions to cut military aid to Azerbaijan and Turkey, who were attacking at the time Nagorno-Karabakh, also known as Artsakh, a disputed territory between Azerbaijan and Armenia. At the rally, I spoke with Mari Farkatian. She's Armenian and a professor of history at the University of Hartford. I asked her to give me a little context about Armenian history. Uh, about a hundred, well, hundred and some years ago, there was a genocide perpetrated by the Ottoman Turkish government against the Armenians. So the country started with about two million Armenians. By the time, by 1923, it's a million and a half are dead. My grandparents were survivors, for example. That is part of the history. The other part of the history is that Turkey has a plan, and the plan has been around since the middle of the 19th century. The Ottoman Turks and then the nationalist Turks that are running the country now are interested in creating some kind of pan-Turanic state that reaches all the way across Central Asia. So if they get rid, if you look at it, it's, it's sort of like a chessboard. If you get rid of Armenia, then you can unify with Azerbaijan, and then you can unify with every single other Muslim Turkic state across Asia. And Iran is not a Turkic state, but that's another story. Part of the reason why, and I'm sorry I'm going to give a history lesson, but part of the reason why the Chinese are so pissed off at the Uyghurs and they're abusing them 
It's part of this. It's the other end of this. They understand very well what the threat is to them. And so they're trying to deal with it on their end of it. But, you know, Turkey stuck its finger in every single pie there is. Um, Libya, Syria, and there are plenty of other parts of the world where I'm unaware of that they're doing the same thing. What's your name? Marinissa Hakin. How important do you think the diaspora here in the United States is to helping solve this problem or advocate for this cause? It's a daily, daily effort. So we can do it. Our word will be heard. We will be successful. Our word is not going to be heard. At least maybe five people who will pass by will understand the problem, will go back and read the news and say, oh, let me see what is happening in order to really understand that we are on a fair part of this, of this war and we want justice for Armenians. And maybe they will also join us to tell the Congress, their representatives, to vote for that because this question has been 110 years now on the table of U.S. Senate and it hasn't been accepted yet. So, so this is what the diaspora is doing. Each Armenian family has a person who is a victim of this situation. And there is a lot of sadness and there is a lot of disappointment, but we still have a hope. Thank you, thank so, you so much, much for talking with me. Yes, All right, thank, thank you, you so much. Take care. So my name is Eva Yesayan. Um, so I am Armenian that grew up in Iran. There's a, a, a huge population of Armenians in Iran. Many of them, their history has been that they've had to constantly migrate. You know, So there were Armenians that migrated from Armenia to Iran and then so on and so forth, always looking for a uh, better life uh, and unfortunately for a lot of political reasons having to move. How do you describe the Armenian people on a whole and how much of the character of the Armenian people has been formed by this violence? Um, Armenians are, I would say, resilient people. They will, they have uh, gone through a lot and they've always been able to stand on their own feet and help their community. And uh, it's just amazing to me that despite all of their history, they are peaceful people. They are, they embrace uh, uh, the culture and, uh, of anywhere that they've gone. We're scattered all around the world and uh, uh, we, you know, basically see it as a positive thing that, you know, we immerse ourselves in the other cultures and and sometimes that may be one reason people don't know about us maybe as much because we are very good about you know, like blending in and being able to take it all in. <laughs> but anyone that has gone to Armenia or any Armenian person or home always says that we are extremely uh, welcoming and um, so I can't came out to this country on my own and I came to uh, live with an Armenian uh, you know relatives um, that took me in here and that's how I became a West Hartford resident up to this year. Now. That's how we got to this corner together. Yes, yeah. What do you say your name? Uh, Tamara. Tamara? What's your last name? Oganova. Tell me why you're here today. To support our nation. And for those who don't, who are driving through this intersection and they may not understand what's happening, how do you explain it to someone who doesn't understand? I think it's hard to explain because 
It's every hour. Like my daughter's same age right now. That I was 14 years old when I got kicked out from Azerbaijan. That's why I'm here. So, and my daughter's now she's 14, and it's again same thing happening there again. Every generation, my grandma, my great grandma, my mom, me. Now my kids, they're not there, but they're still facing it. Same threat. And it's like world is, it doesn't care. Nobody cares. How does it feel to be here as part of a diaspora? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, because you feel, <sighs> you want to be there with them. Like I have cousins there still, and every morning, like I check my phone, like because I know, and someday they probably have to be in army and to protect their land. And you feel bad that you're here and you can't do anything. You can't help. Well, you can do like you can support with donation, with like helping. Like today, I sent some like donation to uh, for refugees because I hated that word refugees because we were refugees. I was 14 years old and I was refugee. And now little kids, same thing. And it's 20, it's 21 centuries, come on. How hopeful are you that this will be resolved soon? I think you have to have a hope. But that should be resolved a long time ago. We shouldn't be here. We hope it's going to be, that's why we're here actually, we're looking for some support. So many petitions, so many like uh, phone calls we did, it's like nothing. We just want the world to know and say something, like, you know, don't be silent. Those were voices from a West Hartford rally that took place last year. The sanctions they were asking for did not happen. The 44-day conflict ended on November 10th, 2020. A total of over 5,000 soldiers on both sides were killed, as were at least 146 civilians, including children and adults, in Azerbaijan and Armenia. When we get back. I find myself finding gap in myself. Do I want to act like American mind or Korean mind? There are so many homes that you can have, and in each of those homes, you almost have a different identity, right? More ways to look at being part of a diaspora. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're talking about what it's like to be part of a diaspora. Later in the show, you'll hear from a man who refers to himself as part of the disabled diaspora, but right now meet Tanya Hyane Kohong. She was born and raised in South Korea, and when she was 18, she came to the United States. She's written four poetry collections, most recently The War Still Within, poems of the Korean diaspora. She joined me from her office in New York, and I asked, what does the word diaspora mean to her? I think recently we're using that word very, very much. And for me, it's like almost rootless. And it just feels like almost like a feeling that 
makes me cry at this moment. Like, I don't know why, but uh, you're not belong, you know? You didn't come first. It's just like a wind, like you're just passing through. You're a stranger, like... It's like a guest. You're a guest of this land. You not own it. I don't know. It it just like hurts. And saying it's almost like sealed, you know, giving the um, word on your, you know, iPad or something. Say, hey, you know, you not belong here. And you go to Korea and then, hey, you know, you're, you left, you know, you're not belong. And then you don't even, even though you speak Korean, you write in Korean, but it's, it's different, you know, you're different literature. And then, so then where, where are we finding in home? Do you always feel like you're in this middle ground where you, you physically represent a place, right? You, someone looks at you and they can see that you're Korean. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they can tell the difference because uh, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of people guessing. <laughs> yeah, like it's like where you're from. Yeah, yeah, where are you from? No, really, where are you from? But so in one way, you represent where you come from by how you look, and by your voice and the languages you use. And on the other hand, you also are equally a human being who's been living in the United States for how long have you been here? So almost forty years. More than I lived in Korea. And then the thing is, I was in student, like in a high school student in Korea. So my just like emotion in Korea is just like a still teenager attachment with Korea. My feeling towards the Korea is like, just like teenager. Like I felt like, so that even the food that I love, Korean food is like teenager munching food you know, ice creams or like after school snacks. That's what I'm craving for all the time. I think it's this gray area between you are legitimately Korean. That's where you were born until you were 18, right? And you've been here over 40 years. So you're legitimately, and I don't even know what that word means now that I use it. I want to say you're legitimately uh, an American, but I'm, I want to understand that middle ground that you walk of being both things at once. And is that, does that give you more, tr more trouble, more difficulty, or does it make you more enriched or both or what? You know, it's it just like really um, sort of like, I think it's just really tough being who I am. I understand like both culture and language is like not and it's like sometimes like you wish not to know in a way because it's just too painful to know both and then you have to act like act this way or like and then in Korean like you have to act this way and then it's just like I feel like I um kind of lost in my translation in between I am just like trying to figure out who am I and then it's just like even among friends, there's like a really rare of people like me that came from Korea and then actually writing in English and Korean, but I still trying to express and then 
bring out goodness out of it. I find myself finding gap in myself. Like, do I want to act like American mind or Korean mind? What wanted to choose? For example, the poem that I wrote in my generation 1.5 that I wrote called No Trespassing. And the poem that I wrote it, I was very angry. So then when I was reading in English, then I could just totally could express my emotion. It's like, begin goes like, I am a closed door, closed door. You knock on my door before you come in. But um, that poem that I wrote in English and then I translated in Korean and then it just become <laughs> soft voice. 나는 닫혀있는 문, 닫혀있는 문입니다. 그대 내 문을 두들겨 주세요. But it, yeah, I could have say like, 나는 닫혀있는 문, 닫혀있는 문입니다. I could read that, right? But then audience will say like, whoa, she's like a mad Korean poet, what Korean women. And then they will say, they're like, don't like read like that. You know, like because in Korean, before human, I am a woman. Do you get that? And then I'm a role that I have to sort of like feels like lock in in this role that I supposed to act on it. Instead of like trying to be who I am, I have to be play in the role and then make sure that I meet your expectations. In the roles. You clearly have a strong connection to Korea. And I'm assuming that that connection, like we're talking about, can be really complicated. I'd love to hear you read your poem, Lucky Seven, uh, which describes a woman that lives in the U.S. now and she visits her family back in Korea. Lucky Seven. One, she comes back to Korea with a case and case of a black market gold. Johnny Walker, Marlboros, M&Ms, Vaseline, Aspirin, Ponds. Now, she doesn't have to boil in the kitchen, cook for her ill-tempered father, or overbearing brothers. Now, abusive mother smiles gives the warmest spot in the underbun. She sits there and her sister brings food for her. She smokes and drinks American coffee. Her younger brother brings her crystal ashtray. Two, she's not Korean, but alien from a dark moon. She takes the whole family to America. They bury her. It sounds like you share that feeling of belonging neither here nor there. It's also, this is a typical, usually they call the Yang Gongju, you know, that is GI's girlfriends or they become a wives. And then they're the one after Korean War, they're the one breadwinner of the family a lot of times. 
and they come to America and then they bring back to all the goodies to Korea. And now role changes, right? They're the, she's the breadwinner. They treat her nicely, putting her underbang is like the warm Korean floor, you know, very like baked, you know, the stones. The underbang is like the warmest part is the who got the power, they sit there, right? And then now she got the power, right? She brings all these goodies. And then at the time, the another immigrant movement, so they're the one who bring their family to America because she got the citizenship and then they bring the family to America. But the family, they're ashamed of her. They don't want other people to know that her daughter or sister or whatever who got married to GI and then brought them to America. That they fulfilled that role. Yeah. So, I mean, even um, one of my friends, she was, you know, her father was a GI. Her mom was the Korean mom. When she went to her cousin's house, and the aunt and uncle said, now you have to go because we're going to have a church of people coming. We don't want you to be here. I mean, that, that is like a seriously, the truth reality. They get rejected. Their own family. Um, you write, as we've been talking about, you write in both Korean and English. And uh, this whole feeling of living in two worlds is really summed up in your short and very poignant poem, Generation 1.5. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. I mean, there were, this poem is like a very early age that I wrote. I read it in Korean first and English. 1.5세. 없다, 없다, 없다. 확실한 신원도, 정확한 국적도, 편한 언어도. 언제나 한몸 속에 너무나 틀린 두 사람이 사는 것 같은 불편 속에 산다. Generation 1.5, lack, 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 identity, citizenship, language, an awkward life, two people living in one body. It sounds like there's a lot that's rewarding about this double life and the gaps and the space that you're filling in these gaps. And I wonder if you could go back in time. Would you still choose this path? Has it been more trouble than it's worth? Or has it been uh, a lot to write home about, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think so. But I think what I wanted to be changed is like, I mean, the path, like, you know, I am just really happy that I'm here. But uh, the path that I wanted to be changed is like, I wanted to be more courageous. And then I want to be more authentic. And then not holding back to what I wanted to say. I, I wish I was more bold earlier. I wish I was more asking myself, what do I want to do? And then be more blunt and honest. And then reaching out my dreams earlier you know if if i knew then i wanted to go back 
and then pursuing my writer's life more boldly and then courageously. Does that make sense? It sure does. Tanya Yang Hei Ko Hong, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for your invitation. Whether the move is longitudinal, like Tanya's, or latitudinal, like my next guest's, the challenges and rewards of being part of a diaspora are, well, they're what you make of them. Onel Agosa was born in Benin, West Africa, and his family moved to Montreal, Canada in 2007. He was just nine years old. I asked him when he thinks about the word diaspora, what comes to mind? In a sense, I feel like we're all becoming diaspora. Right? It's like if you, whether you grew up in Canada, but then went to school to London, right? It's like, it's like what you pick up from those interactions with people living there are completely different. Right? So I think it's those experiences that shape really your almost personality that I think that I define as being diaspora. And, and we all are in a sense, right? If you if you moved or interacted with someone who moved, guess what? From, from my perspective, you have a bit of diaspora in you because that's just the way the world is moving. Now that is accentuated for people like me. And I'm technically part of the first generation immigrant. But for example, my older brother has a, has a child now. So I've been an uncle for the past year, right? And Isaac is still technically African and he's still like we all view him and he'll be raised with values that are associated with Benin, but he'll also, you know, grow up in a Canadian environment. Right? So whether, whether he chooses or not, he'll have a bit of everything. Now to which extent is different versus, for example, myself, right? So there's this also emotional connection. I think that is important when we talk about diaspora and how active the diaspora can be. Um, which is for someone like Isaac, if we don't build that connection, for example, with Benin, he would be by default part of the diaspora, but I don't think he'll be as active as someone who has an emotional connection versus someone like me, for example, or my brother, right? So that's how I think about it. It makes me think about how, you know, when you look different than the majority of the people who are there, that external sort of otherness and then there's the internal otherness that so many people share. My producer, Jessica, was born and raised in Germany. Um, but until she opens her mouth, <laughs> you don't necessarily know that, right? And so you both are experiencing an otherness in some ways and trying to build community where you are. But the two of you are different in terms of how you're seen in the context of these communities. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean... Again, and I think I said this exact sentence in my TED talk, and it's identity is a moving target, right? It's it's who you think you are or who you are, period, right? Is constantly evolving and transforming. And there are so many dimensions to it, right? It's like we could go to the most obvious with, you know, you're black or you look black, you're white or you look this and that, but the experiences that you have, there's an emotional component to identity. There's, you know, what do you define as home, right? Um, and, and I remember also saying, you know, for me, home is where the heart is, right? I feel at home pretty much anywhere personally, but that's because I personally feel that I belong everywhere as a human being, right? It's like, I feel like everywhere is home if the basis of my identity is just to be and to be a human being. Um, now, if we get into the details and the specific of it, right, Benin is home because I have family that I love that are there. Quebec City is home because, well, my mom, who's the woman I respect the most, is there, and my dad is there, and my brother is there, and I have some friends there. 
Montreal is home now because some of my closest friends are in Montreal. So, so home can be, there are so many homes that you can have. And in each of those homes, you almost have a different identity, right? The O'Neill that you see in Montreal when I'm with my friend at Miguel is slightly different than the one that you'll see back in Quebec City or the one that you'll see back in Benin. It doesn't mean that it's not authentic, but all of those pieces together really construct this concept of identity, which for people like us slash diaspora becomes very complex very quickly. When you were 13, you were on a bus and you saw an older white lady get on and you smiled and offered her your seat and she went off on you and said, go back to where you came from. And that was, you said that was the first time you felt self-conscious about being black. And you've obviously given this a lot of thought and a lot of experience. And um, I wonder what you would say to that 13-year-old you knowing what you know now. I would just give myself a hug, probably. You know, growing up in West Africa, the concept of blackness is non-existent, <laughs> to be honest, right? It's like there's this, the, the same way almost if you, whatever predominantly characteristic you like to think of a place, if it's there enough, and it's pretty much what everything looks like around you, you know, that self-awareness is not there, right? And even being in a predominantly white country, if you want a white, smaller city, I did not see a difference between me and the people around me. I was just a kid in a new city, period, right? And, and that day, I really understood, or at least a bit of a glass shattering of the first one, at least with many little experiences like that of, oh, wow, like I may feel like I belong everywhere and I may just look at myself as this little human being is just going through life and just switching cities, but environments around me may not necessarily do the same. And, and I think that was just a sad moment. Like, I don't think my 13-year-old self was necessarily or, or would even see that as a traumatic experience. I think it was just a sad one. Um, so I would give myself a nice hug. I'm proud, and I would say I'm proud of how you reacted because my 13-year-old self actually felt compassion for that person. Because in my head, if you are going to feel such unease inside of you simply because someone that you know looks slightly different than you is in the space, same space i wouldn't want to be in your shoes every single day that is a lot of emotional burden to be carrying so yeah i actually felt compassion for that lady that day more than anything else so i would say i'm proud of that 13 year old for how he reacted and how he felt and stayed true to his identity as a human being first and i would give myself a hug what would you say to her <sighs> I hope you find peace. I think, I think that's what I would say to her. I think when we talk about the concept of racism, for me, you know, truly being racist is feeling almost, um, in, in French, we would say a mal de vivre, but almost like a, um, an unease simply because something is different or this, this innate belief that you're worth more than another human being alive because of certain characteristics that you have versus others. And for me to have that inside of you in a world that is becoming more and more connected <laughs> must be extremely painful. And I hope for those people who are in those situations, and that's the compassionate part of me, would say, I hope you find peace 
where I draw the line is you still don't have the right to go and take someone else's life or hurt someone else. Um, so yeah, so that's what I would say to her. I hope you find peace, particularly at a more advanced age, right? You, you would hope that as you advance through life, you feel more and more peaceful about who you are and just the life that you live. So that's what I would say. Well, Onel Agosa, thank you so much for talking with me. Many thanks. It's been great. After the break, what it's like to be part of the disabled diaspora, according to the man who was the first African-American full-face transplant recipient. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. We've been talking about what it means to be part of a diaspora and how the use of the word has evolved over time. I got to say, the whole concept for doing this show came about when I first interviewed Robert Chelsea earlier this year. He's the first African-American to get a full face transplant. And a couple times when we were talking, he would say something like this. This transplant is another reason for me to rejoice and be grateful at what God has exposed me to out of the uh, disabled diaspora. Disabled diaspora. Until that conversation, I'd never heard the word used that way. But it made a lot of sense, so I got back in touch with Robert to talk about it. Joining us again for the interview was Everick Brown. He's Robert Chelsea's godson, and he's the spokesperson for Donor's Dream, a nonprofit that raises awareness about organ donation. I asked Robert to expand on that phrase, disabled diaspora. What does it mean to him? Throughout the, the ages of man, uh, anyone that has had a, uh, an effect uh, that is considered abnormal for a human, uh, they are categorized. Uh, and, uh, you know, they may be looked down upon. Very few for that matter, are extended any respect that would not come from royalty, but nevertheless it's more considered to be for the poor or those that uh, are not carrying their own weight, uh, the needy, etc. And so the disabled community most certainly uh, are not admired or looked up upon, but they are, are considered one that you, you don't want to spend much time with. Kids don't want to play with the, 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 the disabled and, or deformed or whatever. A, a little more, I went to the restaurant. My sister was with me. I'm sitting there waiting for us to be, to, to, to be seated. And a little boy, he must have been about two or three, he comes in with his father. And, he, and he's looking around, and he looks at me, and he jumps back, and he runs back to his dad, grabs his dad's leg. Says, Daddy, Daddy, he looks like a zombie. But this is a big old restaurant. It's full of people. <laughs> it wasn't insulting to me. It was, you know, kind of humorous because it didn't matter to me. I'm, I'm sitting there. I, I know that, you know, I look like a Halloween mask. But many people look at the person that's physically, especially physically deformed, they look at them as all the same. 
somebody that's either scary or stay away from and, and so on. So I see that uh, this is my own personal uh, definition of a uh, person that's uh, in the diaspora. I have a couple of questions. One thing I wanted to put your last story in context, which was the story he was telling about the little boy was before the face transplant, just to make that clear. And I think you, you brought up some really great points about the diaspora, Chelsea. And one of the things or one of the places I thought you were gonna go was as a person of color, as a person with physical handicaps, whether they be burns, you're an amputee, as well as a face plant recipient, that has created a new community for you of people. So there is the community of being a person of color is one community. There's now the new community of people with, let's call it under the umbrella of handicaps or disabled challenges. Um, so you came into this new community with some type of culture or some type of belief. You've now blended into a new community. It really speaks to uh, diaspora, right? Because you have culture when you enter into the new community. You now bring those new cultures into this new community. Do you feel like you're somehow further removed from them or do you become closer to them And are you now mixing in other cultures into what was your original culture? I feel I've been really privileged to be a part of a community that deserves attention. And as a result of uh, my personal experience, I have now been able to appreciate the challenges uh, the you know resources that I would not have been exposed to I had no clue. Uh, I, you know I've heard many years people say, well, you know my 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 medicine is very expensive. I have a high copay. Uh, uh, you know the medical industry to talk, but now I know. Huh? You know I am broke every month. There's required medication, so. Uh, am I happy about it? Well, no, I'm not. But I'm glad God allowed me to see the needs of others. What kind of person would I be uh, to not be able to have a heart or empathetic toward my fellow brother or sister, especially now that I'm a part of them? And my God, they have suffered so long. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of sorry that I didn't know, I didn't realize, I couldn't put my finger on the importance that, that's required, that's uh, absolutely uh, uh, imperative that our fellow man uh, be, be aware of. So I'm a part of them now. So instead of saying, oh, I wouldn't want it, I'm so glad that I, I had a chance to go through it. This is more glorious than man can describe. I assure you of that. I wonder too, you make you make me think about the fact that 
you know, for many others in a diaspora, some of them made the choice to leave their home country. Some of them revisit and can go back to their home country. But in your situation, there's it wasn't your choice and it's not an option for you to go back to what you were like before, what your body was like before. I'd just like to hear your thoughts on what how that kind of diaspora is different than the diaspora that we're used to thinking about in that way, more limited options and then some. I think some of us are born into it and some of us, if you will, adapt it or graft it into it. It's essentially caring about your brother. You can't tell somebody to care. I'm just glad that I was placed in a condition where now I'm open to be able to discover I can care about a, a diaspora that's within us and not one that has escaped or discovered, but it happens to be your family member or at least one in your neighborhood. He is part of my diaspora. Did they go anywhere? No. Are they overlooked? Are they cast away? Are they discounted as a productive citizen? See? Yeah, they are a weight on someone else's shoulder. And that's how I see my disabled diaspora. Robert Chelsea, Everett Brown, thank you so much for coming back and talking with me. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns, Abby Levine and Dylan Reyes at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can hear them all, including my original interview with Robert Chelsea on what it was like getting that full face transplant at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>